0: If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. We got to the end of chapter 1 last week, to verse 46. And we looked at Romans chapter 15, which says we're supposed to learn lessons from the Old Testament. So we were in the section of what can we learn from chapter 1. The first thing we saw is that disobedience to God's commandments is in God's view because of a lack of faith. And I say in God's view because his view is right. And we looked at, since some of you weren't here last week, let's go to Hebrews chapter 3 and let's see where God says it in black and white. Hebrews chapter 3 starting in verse 7. Hebrews starting in chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Who is the Holy Spirit? Is that God speaking? That's God speaking, which means it's got to be true. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Wait a minute. This is quoting from the Old Testament. What does that mean? Who gave this quote to the authors in the Old Testament? God did Himself. "Do you not harden your hearts" is in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. He's talking about the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness. They should have spent two. Why did they spend another 38? Because of disobedience. Because of lack of faith. God said, "Go take the land." And they said, "Uh uh uh." Have you seen those people? They're huge. We can't do this. Well, no, we can't, but God can. And God said, go, I gave it to you. And they said, "Ah, we're not going. So God judged them, and then they said, well, we're going to go then. And God said, nope, uh uh-uh, don't go up. I'm not with you. And what'd they do? They went up anyway. And what happened? They got slaughtered. And they come back down going, I don't know what to do now. The answer is, listen to God. Obey. Yeah, verse 9. Where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray. Where? In their heart. The reason they disobeyed is they had a heart problem. And they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Departing from the living God. Does that take us back to Deuteronomy? Keep a finger here. To Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Read in the Old Testament, read in the New Testament. It reads the same. If you will not follow God's commandments, he says, is because you have forgotten me. You have no faith. Deuteronomy 8.11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by, this is the way you demonstrate that you have forgotten the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Is that only to Jews? No, the mixed multitude was part of the group. They're from every nation of the world. It applies to everybody. Does it say that in the New Testament? Did the Apostle Paul say circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters, which means it has not changed. So back to Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He right here says unbelief is the reason. Lack of faith is the reason that you depart from the living God. But exhort one another daily. What does it mean to exhort? To build, to build each other up. Encourage each other. Push each other. Daily. While it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What's the significance? They keep using the word today over and over and over again. Did God promise you a tomorrow? No, so we must live for today. Verse 14: if we have become partakers of Messiah, how many of you have? Put up your hands. Not really, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if we have become partakers of Messiah, if, what's that if mean? It's a condition if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Everyone who entered the wilderness put the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost and lintel. What did they say? They say, we believe. Then they got out to the Red Sea and said, oh no, we're all going to die. We should have stayed in Egypt. And God parted the Red Sea and they went through and said, hallelujah. Then he said, oh, wait a minute, Um, there's no food. We should have just died in Egypt, let's go back. So God provided manna from heaven. And they said, hallelujah. Then he said, but we're thirsty, there's no water. We should have died in Egypt, let's go back. What's that? At the the, the sea, not only did he part the sea, but he stood between them and the enemy, to protect them. He blinded the enemy so that yeah. they couldn't see and gave light to the children so that they could see and cross over and then when they got there, then he removed himself. Yeah, but him. every day and every night he's amongst them yes. in the Pillar of Cloud or Pillar of Fire. Every yes. day he's there. Yes. And yet they say, oh, we're thirsty. We should have died in Egypt. Let's go back. So he gives them water from a rock. And then do they say, we better follow God, or do they go astray again and again? So that's what he's saying here, is if you are not careful and guard your faith, sin will start creeping in. And how did Messiah describe sin like leaven and loaf of bread? It begins small and it permeates through and through. So verse 14, for we have become partakers of Messiah if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Do you think that end means when everything goes away? Or is that when we reach the goal? And what is the goal? Salvation, Salvation, which means they were still looking for it. Well, it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Well, all but two, right? Joshua and Caleb. Now, with whom was he angry? Forty years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Well, was it because of unbelief or because of sin? the answer is yes in God's eyes they are one and the same so disobedience in God's eyes and he's always right is a lack of faith and it shows us that sin has consequences what was the consequence of the error of the ten spies saying we can't take the land 38 more years wandering in the wilderness going round in circles because they could have gone from Mount Sinai to the promised land in two weeks so for 38 years they go round and round in circles wouldn't that have been exciting chapter 4 verse 1 of Hebrews I want to continue this all the way through verse 13 therefore therefore means let's draw an application Paul's not saying let's decide what they did wrong he's talking to you and me Therefore, since a the promise remains of entering his rest, is this before or after Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection? This is long after. There's still the promise of entering his rest. Why? What do God's promises never do? They never end, they never fail. God will never break his word. Give me a verse. Psalm 89:34 says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips, right? Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. That tells you you've got to think twice about what the gospel is. If the gospel was preached to them in the wilderness, as it's preached to them in the days of Paul and to us today. But the words they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Were they told that there's a coming Messiah who would be the savior of the world? Yes, they were. Then why didn't they? The answer is, it says, not being mixed with faith. For we who have believed do enter, it's actually in the Greek, will enter, that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. That rest is referring to the messianic kingdom. The day of the Lord. When Messiah rules and reigns. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What were you saying the other day Daniel? That Messiah's death, burial and resurrection was not an afterthought. It was not a plan B. That's what this says. From the foundation of the world. What verse proves that? Revelation talks about the Lamb slain from the beginning. Well, let's give me a verse from the beginning. From Genesis 1 verse 14. Genesis three, talks about the lamb. Genesis 3 is the Proto-Evangelium. talks about the seed of the woman. But call it back to Genesis 1 verse 14. Which talks about the appointed times. Which are the festivals that teach the first and second coming of Messiah. So from the beginning before the creation of mankind in the first place. God set up the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell the believers, as well as the fall festivals to bring us into the kingdom. All that before man was even created. Was it an afterthought? Absolutely not. Verse 4, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day. Does this mean the Sabbath is still the seventh day? Yeah. In this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Why does Paul take the verse from Genesis 2 and the one from the wilderness failures and put them together as talking about the same thing? The seventh day teaches the coming day of the Lord with its millennial kingdom. They shall not enter my rest. That's the coming day of the Lord with the Messianic kingdom. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again he designates a certain day saying in David. That's Psalm 105 I believe it was. Today after such a long time as it has been said. Today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest that is if their entry into the promised land was the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise, then he would not have spoken of another day, that is David a thousand years after not actually a thousand years, 400 years after, would not have said there is still the rest to come. Verse 9 says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God that word rest is not just rest you guys know it's what? specifically the sabbath rest that is the ultimate fulfillment that is the messianic kingdom for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as god did from his let us therefore be diligent what does the word diligent mean is that slovenly let us approach with halaham no be diligent be excited be encouraged work for it Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So Paul's talking to a bunch of believers saying, you must continue in the faith, lest you fall short of that promised kingdom. I digress. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 which we looked at last week, I know, but not everybody was here. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Paul is talking to a bunch of believers, right, that come out of the Gentile world. And he has just rebuked them because they haven't met someone having sexual relations with his father's wife. Absolutely forbidden in the Torah, but in the church they're going hey that's cool hey that's cool and paul says uh-uh you get him out don't you let him think for a minute he's a true believer in messiah so in first corinthians 6 9 he wants to let him know that that's not the only sin they need to look for do you not know that the unrighteous what's another term for the unrighteous the lawless Just like Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 to 23. No, it's Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why would he tell them don't be deceived? Because there's people out there, false teachers trying to deceive them. All the way back in Daniel chapter 7 verse 25, it tells us that the false Messiah will try and change God's laws. In appointed times. But the false Messiah has not been revealed yet. But the mystery of lawlessness has always been in the world. Since when? When did it start? Since the Garden of Eden when the serpent said to Adam and Eve, Oh, did God really say? That's what John means by the spirit of Antichrist is here. And Paul used the terms, the mystery of lawlessness. They mean the same thing. That Satan has always been trying to get people to stop following God's commandments. And then what happened in the 4th century? What did the Catholic Church say? Stop following God's commandments. Start doing these man-made things instead. Was that any different from the Pharisees of old? No difference at all. And what did Messiah say to the Pharisees? You sons of the devil. A lots of things. But none of them are good. So 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, I'm sorry, I digress. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But don't miss verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified, the name of the Lord Yeshua, by the Spirit of our God. Which means what? You (coughs) repented. You repented. So Paul's saying that if you're committing any of these sins, and you don't repent, don't think you're on the way to heaven, because you're not. What will God not forgive if we repent? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Anything else, anything else, God said he will forgive if we will repent. What if we won't repent? Does God forgive anyway? Mm. Brother Wayne. Yes, ma'am. Blaspheming against the Holy Ghost or yep. the Holy Spirit has been a diverse thing for years. Explain what your stand is or what the Bible says on the what is blasphemy of the holy spirit when messiah cast out demons the Pharisees said you're casting them out by beelzebub which is satan so the miracles he was performing through the holy spirit they attributed to satan that is blasphemy of the holy spirit right so it's not like saying it doesn't exist or something like that no no it's not like that it's attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. 2 Corinthians 12. You're welcome. 2 Corinthians 12. Verses 20 and 21. There's a reason that I wanted to go here specifically. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Because we know it's written to people who claim to be believers, who come out of the Gentile world, and Paul is calling them, even though they call themselves Christians, to repent of these evil things. Verse 20, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness with which they practiced. Again, to put it a little more succinctly, the reason I want us to look at these verses and consider them hard is because there are so many mainline theologian preachers out there today saying repentance is not part of salvation. That if you repent, you cannot be saved because you're demonstrating a lack of faith in God. That God won't save you if you continue to sin. What does Paul say? You if you continue in sin, you're on the wrong road. You better repent. You better turn from it. You better. Sanctify yourself before it's too late. And this is where we pick up from last week with Galatians chapter 5. Basically every group Paul talks to, he goes over these same points. Because there was a large teaching back in the first century called antinomianism, which is a big way of saying they were teaching that when Messiah was buried, crucified, and, or crucified, buried, and resurrected, that the commandments went away. They were done away with. Therefore, you don't need to do them. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which means obvious, which are Adultery, fornication, uncleanness. Is this only certain types of uncleanness? No, this is all uncleanness. In Isaiah 66, what happens to those that are eating piggies when Messiah returns? They what? They are consumed in his wrath, or to put it in more blunt terms, he kills them. Yeah. Lewdness. Lewdness. Idolatry. Sorcery, which includes drug abuse. Hatred. Contentions. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. What does and the like mean? Is this an exhaustive list? It's not. Which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past. He says, I've told you over and over again that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which means you need to want. Repent. First Timothy chapter one, we're still under the topic. Sin has consequences. Can sin keep you from going to heaven? The answer is absolutely. First Timothy one, verses eight to 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That means not as a way of salvation, because it never was a way to earn salvation. What is it? It's a way for God's children to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. If we were all born righteous, never committed a sin, we wouldn't need the law to tell us what sin is because we never do it. But how many of you have never sinned? If you put up your hand, you're sinning, so don't do it. (laughs) But for the lawless and insubordinate, the law is there to tell us what God told us to do and what he told us not to do for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, which is another way of saying what? Dot, dot, dot. It's not a complete list. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That seems pretty clear. Go to Revelation 22 chapter 22 verses 12 to 15. Revelation 22 verses 12 to 15. And behold what does behold mean? Shut up and listen. Something's coming that you don't want to miss. It's too important. I am coming quickly. That doesn't mean soon. The Greek word is the word from which we get the tachometer, which measures the speed of the engine in the car. It means that when it starts to unfold, it unfolds rapidly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm the aleph and the tav, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That's from Isaiah 41.4. Blessed are those who do his commandments that. Why the word that? Here's why. Here's what happens when you do. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs, which are male homosexuals. And sorcerers, which includes drug abuse. And sexually immoral. Just write LBTQ on all them alphabetical <laughs> things. And murderers. And idolaters. And whoever loves and practices a lie. Do you want to enter into the New Jerusalem or do you want to enter into the Lake of Fire? your choice. He tells you here how to choose. I mentioned Matthew 7. Let's go back to Matthew 7 because that's where my mind went next when I was making notes. Because we've read what Paul had to say and what Peter had to say and what John had to say, but these words are read. These words, Messiah spoke out of his own lips. Verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, what day? The day of the Lord, judgment day. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? These are the people arguing that this proves that I am your child. This proves I'm a believer. This proves my faith in you. And what does the Lord say? No, it doesn't. Did God command us to prophesy in his name, to cast out demons in his name, or to do many wonders in his name? The answer is no. So they're good things. They're not bad things, but they're not what God commanded us to do. Verse 23 brings it home. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness you've done all these things that you thought I would want but you didn't do the things I told you to do so when you do things that you think God would want instead of what he told us we're wrong Second Peter no let's go to 1 John first. 1 John 2 First John two. Be glad your minds work differently than mine. Mine just naturally jump from one of these to another. First John two verses three and four. John is trying to articulate Matthew chapter seven, verses twenty one to twenty three in a way that people will understand. Because of the folks teaching antinomianism, and the group was called Nicolaitans, they're the ones who taught antinomianism, he wants people to focus back on Messiah's words. He says, now by this we know that we know him. Why does he focus on the word know? Yeah, John 17, 3 said, to know him is to have eternal life. So this is the test. Everyone says, I have faith. The Bible says, okay, here's the test. Do a self-test evaluation. Don't judge others, judge yourself. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. What did we just read about all liars? They have their place like a fire. They're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Oh my. He continues in 1 John 3.10 to say, here's how you tell the child of God from the one who's not. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. That's because there's only two categories. Whoever does not practice righteousness That's in the negative. How would you put that in the positive? Whoever Whoever practices lawlessness, whoever does not practice righteousness, practices lawlessness, is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. I see a red number one out there. I hear so many people, I get texts, I get messages, I get emails, I get letters. That say, Wayne, you keep talking about these commandments like the Sabbath and the Passover, like they matter. Come on, it's not a salvation issue, so why do you worry about it? Because it is a salvation issue. But the traditional church's teaching is that it's not. That you're not to do those things. God doesn't want you to do them. In fact, I've even heard from the stage at the Messiah Conference that for a Gentile to keep the Sabbath is a sin against God. No, it's not. But John says, it is so you simple. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. That's how you can tell this is the test. You say, I love God. I hear a lot of people, they'll say, well, I know this, this lady who loves God with her whole heart and she eats pigs and puts up the best Christmas trees and dyes the Easter eggs and wouldn't dare keep a Shabbat, but she loves God with her whole heart. Well, you may think she does, but what does God say? That she does not. You know, that ties right back to Matthew 7. All these they people God. that say they love God because they're doing all these things that they think they should do, yeah, but it's not. It's not what God commands. Let's go back to Matthew 7 for a moment to look earlier. There are two roads. And what I wish to put in more clear detail because you have to read into it. Verses 13 and 14 is everybody on both roads thinks they're on the way to heaven. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Destruction is the lake of fire. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. The way you can know that everybody on both roads is trying to get to heaven, they think they're on the road to heaven is it says enter by the narrow gate and enter is talking about entering into the kingdom. So they're trying to enter into the kingdom through the broad road not realizing that it leads to destruction. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 1 is trying to teach us. Is that everyone in the wilderness declared their faith to God. And everyone but two died in the wilderness. Because their faith was not real. If you would asked any one of them. Do you love the Lord your God? They would have said oh yes with all our hearts. And then whine. We should have died in Egypt. Let's go back. I'm sorry, I digress. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter three. If you have faith in God, you will be obedient to God. Second Peter three, verses ten to eleven and seventeen. Second Peter chapter three, verses ten to eleven, and then seventeen. Verse ten says, "But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night." Remember, First Thessalonians five. It's only some who are caught like a thief in the night. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because everything's going to be judged. Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Meaning, if you're going to be judged one day, and you are, would you like to hear from the Lord, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, for I never knew you. And in verse 17, Peter says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. What is the error of the wicked? The false teachings that you can continue in sin and God will welcome you with open arms into heaven anyway. Last on this lessons learned, let's go to Matthew 5 and look at more words of Messiah. I don't know about you, but to me, if Messiah said it, that's it. There's no more questions. It's sealed. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In Romans 15, verse 19, that same verb from plerao, it's used by the Apostle Paul and translated, I have fully preached. And that's what this means. Messiah came to fully preach the Torah to help us understand it because the Pharisees were false teachers. They were trying to tell people that the commandments of God are a way to earn salvation. That's absolutely wrong. Verse 18, For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. That word fulfilled means until all prophecy has come to pass. How many of you believe all prophecy has come to pass? That there's no more yet to come? There's the rapture and the resurrection. There's the tribulation period, the second coming, the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. It's not fully come to pass. So why does the traditional church teach That everything was fulfilled when Messiah was crucified. Because they don't want you to keep the commandments. So they want you to believe that this verse says something it does not. Verse 19 says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. What can these only refer back to? There's only one choice. The Torah, the law. And teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever it does and teaches, and we shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What do traditional preachers do with this verse if they even bother to teach it? They say, oh, this doesn't refer back to the law. This refers back to commandments that Jesus will give sometime later. Would those be called these commandments? No. No. Verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I heard a very famous preacher just this very week read this verse and say, the Pharisees kept every little bit of the law, all of God's commandments down to the minutest details. And that this proves that God doesn't want us to keep commandments. Did the Pharisees keep the commandments? No. Read Mark 7 or Matthew 15. They disregarded God's commandments and put in place their own man-made rules and regulations, just as the church did back in the 4th century. At which council did the Pope say, you are no longer permitted to keep the Sabbath. You must keep Sunday instead." That's the council of Laodicea in Canon 29. At which council did they say, you are not permitted to keep Passover anymore. You must keep Easter. That's the council of Nicaea. Does that not make you think of Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 that the false Messiah is going to seek to change God's laws and appointed times? That's that same spirit of Antichrist. If the law was abolished, then what does the antichrist come to abolish? If the law was abolished, what would the antichrist try and abolish two thousand years later? He'd just be a guy. He'd just be a guy. You're exactly right. All right. So those are the lessons to be learned from chapter one. Would you like to go on to chapter two, or are you done? (laughs) All right. Let's go to chapter two. Deuteronomy chapter two. This is why Moses is reminding the children of Israel who were too young at the time the disobedience happened to be held accountable for it, and they may not even remember it. So Moses is going through incident by incident to say, now when you go into the promised land, you believe you're not going to rebel against God, but let me show you how easy it is and how you must work to guard your own heart. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the, it says Red Sea here, but it's Sea of Reeds. The Hebrew is Yom Suf, has nothing to do with the color. The reeds refer to papyrus. As the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted Mount Sinai for many days. What does that mean? They went round and round and round Mount Sinai. Not continually. God would raise up the pillar from over the, the tabernacle. Israel would break camp, go a few hundred yards around the mountain, set down camp again. Then a while later, pick it up, move a few yards around, set down camp again. And they went round and round the mountain for 38 years. So this verse, telescopes 38 years from the sin of the spies until the new generation is ready to enter into the promised land. Verse 2, and the Lord spoke to me saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. Verse 3, you have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward. What's northward from Mount Seir? Yes, if you were to put it on a today's map, they're going to march north in Jordan. They're on the east side of the Jordan River, and above them is the lands of the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Amorites. So that's the way they're going to go. If they had turned westward... They could have gone more straight into the land of Israel. But there's more they need to learn yet. And that's why he takes them northward. (coughs) Verse 3, let's go to Genesis chapter 36, verses 1 through 8. Genesis 36, 1 through 8. Because remember, what kept them from going right into the promised land 38 years ago? There's giants in the land, right? Which caused them to have a lack of faith. What do you suppose is north of them? Giants. giants. Yeah. Do they know it? No, they don't know it. But they're going to encounter the giants. Genesis 36 verses 1-8. through 8. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding... <coughs> To know how to do all manner of work, I'm in the wrong place, but I'm, I'm distracted. God bless you by four red things out here. let's see. Why was the Roman site for fully preached? Romans 15:19. Thank you, Rachel. Why does the church not want you to follow the commandments? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? It's because well, we know. Let's go back to Genesis 36. Genesis 36 verses 1 through 8. Now this is the genealogy of Esau who is Edom. Mount Seir is in the land of Edom or Esau. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. What do you know about Canaan? Canaan was cursed. The people in Canaan were sexually immoral. That's where Sodom and Gomorrah are. Ahab, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, <laughs> Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Besamot, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Navahot. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Besamot bore Ruel. And Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock, So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. So Mount Seir, that they're marching round and round, and getting ready to turn north, is in the lands of Esau, Jacob's brother. What does Esau mean? Hairy. What does Edom mean? Red. Yeah. What was the color of the lentil stew that he sold his birthright for? It was red. So this is to always remind him that he despised his birthright and sold it to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Have You ever had little stew? It's good, but it's not worth your birthright. And she's saying it's not even good. (laughs) That just shows how little he cared about his birthright. So let's go to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua is the next book after Deuteronomy. Joshua chapter 24, verse 4. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. Were they just brothers? No, they were twins. To Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. So God gave Edom to Esau. Will he now give it to the children of Israel and let them have it? The answer is no. God will not break his promise to Esau. So Israel's going to march north through the land, but they're not going to get to take that land. That's important. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 2. That was verse 3. We're on to verse 4. And command the people saying. You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren. The descendants of Esau. Who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you. Therefore watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them. For I will not give you any of their land. Why? Why? Because he gave it to Esau. Does God break his word? The answer is no. No, not so much as one footstep. Because I gave Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. When God makes a promise, God keeps the promise. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want it any other way. What if we read through the Old Testament and find that God's always changing his mind? He doesn't know what he wants. Would that be a way to to live? Wouldn't you live in terror? How do I know come judgment day if I'm going to live up to God's requirements when I don't know what they are? That'd be a horrible way to live. I would much rather know what God requires of me than do my best to do it. So verse 6 says, You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat. In other words, when you pass through the fields of Esau, can you just glean from the fields? No. Can you just take from the vineyards and the the orchards the, the olives that you want? No. But you can buy them. How many vendors would be happy to have a whole group of people come with money saying, Can I have your wares, please? You shall buy water from them with money that you may drink. So you can't even go to the wells and dip out water for free. You've got to buy it. When God gives them the land, he gives them its resources as well. Verse 7, for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through the great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, you have lacked what? nothing they have had food they have had water if the scriptures tell us even their shoes and clothes did not wear out how many of you still wear the clothes and shoes you did 40 years ago no probably not three years ago right so how could their shoes continue to wear and even to fit after all those years it's by the miracle of God. That's what Moses wants him to remember. Is that you may have been disobedient to God, but God blessed you anyway. These people that he's talking to are the ones that have not died in the wilderness. Right? Which means they were little when they started the journey and their clothes still fit, and their shoes still fit, and they haven't worn out. Haven't about that yeah. People always try and find a way to explain away God's miracles. Just this week, I've heard pastors teach on the dividing of the loaves and fishes, and they say, well, he didn't actually multiply the loaves and the fishes. Uh, they didn't want to eat the little boy's lunch so they just pretended not to be hungry. Isn't that the way people react to free food? No, it's not. But what they're trying to say, in fact, they said in no uncertain terms, he could not have multiplied the loaves into fishes. That's not possible. And yet they claim to be Christian leaders. What are they saying? What do they not have? They don't have faith. What happens when God multiplies the loaves and the fishes? They multiply. When they were done eating, the disciples picked up 12 satchels full that had not been eaten. They didn't even start with that much. I know in our Bibles it says baskets, but if you look underneath at the underlying language, their satchels weren't over the shoulder. And there were how many of the apostles? 12. There were how many of the satchels? 12. So each of the 12 are eating from the bread and fish for the next few days. And then they come a group of 4,000 people that are hungry and they say to the Lord, how can we possibly feed all these people? As they're still munching from the food in these satchels. If I told you once, I've told you a hundred times, you will recognize Messiah by the flat forehead from banging it on the table. Let's not give him reason to bang his head on the table, okay? Let's be smarter than that. So verse 7, let's look at Numbers chapter 14, verse 33. The second reference will also be in Numbers, so don't close Numbers after chapter 14. Numbers 14, verses 33 to 35. Numbers chapter 14, verses 33 to 35. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. That's 32 to just give us a running start. And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. What's going to happen to those that were above the age they're going to die. And the children are going to take care of the animals until all the older generation gone. Verse 34, and according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil generation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Verse 34 sets up a very important prophetic principle. In the ancient Jewish wedding ceremony, how long did the bride and groom stay together in the bridal chamber by themselves? for seven days and after seven days they were brought out and presented to the world verse 34 sets up a principle that a day can represent a year so the seven days that the bride and the bridegroom stay in the bridal chamber the khadar, and then they're presented to the world represents the seven years that you and I will spend in heaven before we return with Messiah for the battle of Armageddon A lot of people say there's nothing in the scripture that ascribes a year to a day. But yeah, there is. This isn't the only place, but it's one where we are right now. Now go to Numbers 32, verse 13. Numbers 32, verse 13. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was done. It keeps saying 40 years, but it keeps saying 38 years. There were two years at Mount Sinai before they went up, and God gave them credit for time served. So they end up doing a total of 40 years. The two years before the spies and then the 38 after. Okay, let's go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 2. We're up to verse 8. And when we pass beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau who dwell in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Lot and Gabir. We turn and pass by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Who is Moab? Moab's the son of Lot. Yeah. So from, if you look at the map of Jordan today, the southern part is the old Edom, the middle part is Moab, and then you have Ammon. So verse nine, um, yep, yeah, verse nine. The Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession. Because I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. So to the son of Lot, God gave a portion of land. And God says, I will not give you not even the footful again. Let's go back to Genesis 19 to read about this, about who is Moab and who is Ammon. Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, if you remember, is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot comes out of Sodom and Gomorrah with his two daughters. Genesis 19, beginning in verse 13. When we come to verse 30, Sodom and Gomorrah are gone. You want to know how gone they are? The archaeologists still haven't found the ruins. They know it's down by the Dead Sea. Why? Because what's the Dead Sea full of? Salt. What happened to Lot's wife? She became salt. Verse 30, then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains. The mountains are today part of the nation of Jordan. And his two daughters were with him for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. The daughters are wrong but they believe they're the only three people left alive in the entire world. What about what? Okay. Verse 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night, Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Moab comes from two Hebrew words. The Mo means from, and the Av means father. So she named the child from father. Verse 3, and the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. Ben means son of, and Ammi means my people. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. So not exactly the kind of origins you would want recorded in the scripture if this was your family, right? But that is the origin of Moab and Ammon. And when God gave Moab land, does God revoke his promise? No, the gifts of God are irrevocable. So he tells Israel, you can't have their land because I gave it to them. And let's go to Numbers chapter 21, verses 10 to 20. Numbers chapter 21, verses 10 to 20. Now the children of Israel moved on and camped in a boat. <coughs> And they journeyed from a boat and camped at Ea Avarim in the wilderness which is east of Moab toward the sunrise. Why did they go to east of Moab? Because God said you can't have any of Moab. Don't fight with them. Don't mess with them. Just go around them. From there they moved and camped in the valley of Zerid. From there they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon. The Arnon is a river that flows down into the Jordan. Which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab. Between Moab and the Amorites. So is Israel going to take land north of or south of the Arnon River? North of. The Amorites, they're toast in God's eyes. But that which is south of the Arnon... Israel cannot have. Verse 14, Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahab in Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon, and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. From there they went to, (coughs) looks like beer, but no, it was Baer, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, all of you sing to it. The well the leaders sang, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matanah, which comes from the word give or gift. From Matanah to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Bamot. And from Bamot in the valley that's in the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. Mount Pisgah, does that sound familiar? That's where Moses looked across into the promised land, but God said he wouldn't go in, so he was going to die there. It overlooks the Jericho plain. Get back to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Yes, ma'am. Question. Okay. Question, which I just read. Verse 18, the princes dig the well. Verse 18, the princes dig the well, okay. And the nobles and the people dig it by the direction of the lawgiver. Give some, Lawgiver's Moses. Moses told them to dig it, so they dug it. So, did you tell them a specific way or a direction or anything of how to dig it or it anything? Well, bad? it doesn't tell us that, but I assume they would have said, how do you dig a well? Because they probably hadn't done much of that. So yeah, you can assume that. It says they dug it with their staves, which means with sticks, with poles and staffs. They would have used tobacco if they had one, but (laughs) they didn't. Yeah. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 2. We're up to verse 10. The Amim had dwelt there in times past. The Amim were giants. A people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. The Anakim were also giants. So now Israel, who was afraid to go into the promised land, are standing at the border of the Amorites where there are giants. Let's see what happens. They were also regarded as giants. The word giants there is actually Rephaim. Rephaim were just a clan of giants. So there were several clans of giants. Like the Anakim, but the Moabites call them Amim. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. Now rise and cross over the valley of the Zered. So we crossed over the valley of the Zered. And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of the Zered was 38 years. What does that tell you? It's about time to start taking possession of the land until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. Now this is important. The ones who had to die in the wilderness were those who were the generation of the men of war. Below the age where a man was considered a man of war, they were not held responsible. From the age they were considered a man of war above, they were held responsible. So what is that age? Anybody want to know? Let's go back to Numbers chapter 1. Of course, you all know it. I heard it from several different spots. But it explains why it's 20 years old and above. Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year, after they come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually. From 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Now you understand. When God told them to go up and take the land, who was eligible to go up as a man of war to take the land? Anyone 20 years old and above. Anyone below 20 could not go. They were not considered old enough to take part in the battle. So, who refused to go? Not the children, not the 18 year olds, because they couldn't go anyway. So, God only held responsible those who had the ability to go. So, God did not hold responsible anyone who did not have the ability to go. Yes, ma'am. What about bar mitzvah? Bar mitzvah did not exist then. Bar mitzvah is actually a fairly recent development. When we have a bar mitzvah on September 3rd, I will go over its origin again. But in the days where God led the children of Israel through the wilderness, if you were not 20 years old and above, you were not eligible to fight in the army. So, when so Yep, go ahead, ask the question. I know it's coming. Uh, From the 20 and above. From 20 and above. They could be 60 years old by the time they actually got to Georgia. They could be 60 years old by the time they actually got to the land, that's right. But they won't get to 61. Okay, no, no, that's that's not what I meant. Uh, From the 20-year-old. Those that are twenty years old and below. So the nineteen year olds they wander for thirty-eight more years, they could be getting close to sixty. And they will go in the land. And they will go in the land, as well as those below that age. Okay. That's what I was wanting clarity on. Yeah. So does that mean the age of accountability is twenty? Oh, I don't know about that. We we'll have to wait and ask the Lord when we see him. Wait. Yes, sir that died ever repented there is no evidence that that generation that died ever repented except for Moses but could, they have? could they have maybe just doesn't say so they would have been eternally forgiven if they repeated. we'll just have to wait and ask the Lord yes Sue um, so since it says men of war but that also included the women correct Not necessarily. So maybe, you know, the wife of the man of war who didn't go? She she may or may not have gone in the land. I can't can't tell you from silence whether they did or didn't. Just that when we get to heaven, we'll ask to see the videotapes and then we'll know for sure. Okay, thank you. Yep. Really, it's hard to make an argument based on silence. The Bible doesn't say one way or another, therefore it had to be X. Well, we'll just have to see. But women were never considered in any of the decisions or any of these things. Were yep, but I just assume. not put that on the recording. <laughs> okay. I get all kinds of emails when I say things like that. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 2, we're up to verse 15. For indeed... The hand of the Lord was against them. Oh, you never want that to be you. To destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. God could have just struck them all dead at the moment, but he didn't. He wanted them to have a chance to learn. Verse 16. So it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people, Before I go on, Moses did not get to go into the promised land. Will Moses be in heaven? Give me a proof. Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. So did others repent and will be in the kingdom of heaven too? We'll just have to wait and see. I don't mean to say that none of them could have. Just that it doesn't tell us they did. Verse 17, that the Lord spoke to me, saying, This day you are to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. So when they cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab, what land are they crossing into? What's that? The land of the Amorites. Amorites. Keep a finger here and go back to Genesis 15. Verse 16, Genesis 15, verse 16. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity or lawlessness of the Amorites is not yet complete. So when Israel comes out of Egypt, what do you know about the sins of the Amorites? It's now complete. Which means what? Their toast they are going to get conquered. So let's read about it. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Verse 19. When you come near the people of Ammon, Ammon is the brother of Moab, the other son of Lot. Can they take their land? No. It says, do not harass them or meddle with them. For I will not give you any of the land to the people of Ammon as a possession because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession ooh let me ask this then Mm -hmm. the nation of Jordan today is the land of the Edomites the Moabites and the Ammonites in the day of the Lord when we come to the Psalm 83 war Israel's going to get that land how is that possible they won't exist that means they will no longer exist, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. Which tells us they're going to be fighting against Israel and lose. And once they're dead and gone, then the promise has been fulfilled. Is that a lot of land? No, if you've ever been there, it's not that much land. <laughs> Okay, I'm just, I'm <laughs> verse 20 that was also regarded as a land of giants giants formerly dwelt there but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim which means there used to be giants in the land so what happened to the giants when God gave the land to Moab they were destroyed, destroyed. Mm-hmm. A people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. And you all know how tall the Anakim were, don't you? (laughs) No, just that they were really, really tall. In a few minutes, God's going to give us the dimensions of one of the kings of the giants. I will let you wait with bated breath. Verse 20, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place just as he had done for the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and dwelt in their place even to this day. You're beginning to get an idea and a flavor about what Deuteronomy 2 is, right? What happens to those who oppose the Lord? They get destroyed. And those that follow the Lord faithfully, they get blessed and expand. Yeah, we'll get there. Verse 23, And the Avim, who dwelt in villages as far as Gaza, that's the same Gaza as today, the Kaftorim who dwelt from Kaphr destroyed them and dwelt in their place. Verse 24, Rise, take your journey, and cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sehom the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land begin to possess it and engage him in battle. So Israel's passed out of the land of Esau, through the land of Moab and Ammon, and now they've come to the border of the Amorites. The king of the Amorites is called Sihon, and God says, go to battle. How can he give them that land and say, don't take the other land? I'm sorry, I'm confused. Okay. Remember what we read in Genesis 15, that Israel could not take the land of the Amorites until the sins of the Amorites were so full that God would not allow them to live in the land anymore. God had not given it to the Amorites as a possession, as he had given Moab and Ammon and Edom. So they were dwelling in the land without God's permission, but he wouldn't kick them out until they were so sinful that the land couldn't tolerate them anymore. Verse 25 This day I begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you, and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Of course, back in those days, there weren't eight billion people in the world. I don't think that fear has been taken away. Mm-hmm. I think that's why some. So much persecution has been going on because that fear remains in others who don't wish to acknowledge what God has done. Okay. Verse 26 And I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemot to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace saying Notice this part. Sihon, king of the Amorites, has received a visit offering words of peace saying, let me pass through your land, I will keep strictly to the road, and I will turn neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink, only let me pass through on foot. Is that an unreasonable request? All I want to do is walk on the road, I won't take anything, we will buy from your people, by food by water Yes, Julie? Julie, are you trying to speak and I can't hear you or did you not mean to turn the mic on? Okay, no worry. Verse 20, just as the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir and the Moabites who dwelt in Ar did for me. In other words, if you want to check my references, you can talk to these other kingdoms and they'll tell you, we went through on foot, we took nothing, we paid for anything we used, didn't cost them a thing, and we went through peacefully. We didn't come for war, we didn't come for conquest, we didn't come for booty, we're just on a journey says, until I cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God is giving us. Verse 30, here we go. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. This word hardened in verse 30 means made him stubborn not that it made him evil or angry just made him stubborn and he just said no I don't want you to pass through my land so verse 31 and the Lord said to me see why see Because the Lord already said, get ready for war. I'm going to give you his land. But Moses has sent messengers of peace going, hey, we're just going to pass through quietly. And God said, that's not what I said. See, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to possess it that you may inherit his land. This land is on the east side of the Jordan River. It's the land that came to be called Gilead and Bashan in the north part of Israel on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Then Sihon and all his people came out against us to fight at Jahaz. All the people asked was that we be able to walk through peacefully and buy anything that we need to eat or drink. And Sihon says, no, nah, I'm just going to lead an army and kill y'all. He was not a nice guy. But remember... At this point, the sins of the Amorites are so full, God cannot, cannot tolerate them in the land any longer. Verse 32, and, Sion and all his people came out against us to fight at Jahaz. And the Lord our God delivered him over to us, so we defeated him, his sons, and all his people. We took all his cities at that time, And we utterly destroyed the men, women, and the little ones of every city. We left none remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves. With the spoil of the cities which we took. From Aurora, which is on the bank of the river Arnon. And from the city that is in the ravine, as far as Gilead. There was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all to us. Only did not go near the land of the people of Ammon, anywhere along the river Jabbok, or to the cities of the mountains, or wherever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Sihon was one of the giants. The very people. That the spies that said, oh, they're too big for us. We can't take it. How hard was their victory over Sihon and his people? One 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 verse devoted to it. Complete and total victory. What should that show the people? When God says, I will be with you, I will deliver it. He means... I will be with you, and I will deliver it. Let us now, as we have come to the end of chapter 2, remember what Romans chapter 15 says, that we should learn lessons from that which was written before. Somebody tell me where that verse is in Romans chapter 15 again. Verse 4. So turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 4. We almost got to it last night, but not quite. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. So, what lessons can we learn from chapter 2? The first thing I want you to note that we learn is with God, all things are possible. The people thought we cannot possibly beat the giants. What happens when they come across the first giant? He's toast. Complete and total victory, because that's what the Lord said. Turn to Matthew chapter nineteen. What was the Romans? For? Sorry. What was the Romans? For? Fifteen verse four. Romans fifteen verse four. That the Old Testament is there for us to learn from. Matthew chapter nineteen. Verses 23 to 26. Then Yeshua said to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Yeshua looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So that's the first lesson we learn from chapter 2 of Deuteronomy. The second thing we learn is that God does not change. He gave ear to Esau he would not let Israel have a foot of it. He gave land to Moab and Ammon, he would not let Israel have a foot of it. Let's go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable God gave the land to Esau and he gave land to Moab and he gave land to Ammon and he would not take it away from them it will not be until they are totally annihilated that Israel will expand out its borders the next that we learn from Deuteronomy chapter two is that we should not or may not or commanded not to add to or take away from that which God commands. So go to Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. What if Israel had decided, hey, I'm going to take Ammon for myself? That would have been a disaster. That would have been where the story ended. God tells them where to go, when to go, and they must follow God precisely. You don't add to or take away from that which God commands. The next point we learn from Deuteronomy chapter two is that God's ways are perfect. When they obey God and they follow him faithfully, everything works out, doesn't it? God told them to take the land of the Amorites from Sihon and they were completely successful. It was a total victory because they followed God God's ways are perfect go to Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 referring to the Lord our God it says he is the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of truth and without injustice righteous and upright is he What if Sihon had been a godly king? Would Israel have taken his land? Slaughtered the people? No. They would have let the people pass through the land and all would have been well. But what did Genesis 15 say? That Israel had to wander until the sins of the Amorites were so bad that God could not tolerate them in the land. So God's ways are perfect, and what does it say in Deuteronomy here? A God of truth and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is he. I've had a lot of people say, God can't do that to the Amorites. That's not fair. You make yourself an enemy of God. And God's justice is fair. The next point that we learn from Deuteronomy chapter 2 is that when Israel is obedient to God, then fear of the nation will spread through all the other nations, such that they will be afraid to attack Israel. Let's go first to Joshua chapter 2, because we all know it's in Deuteronomy 28. So we'll just start in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Who's the she? That's Rahab. The they are the spies. And said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us. Isn't that what it said in Deuteronomy chapter 2? That fear spread to all the surrounding nations? I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Sea of Reeds. It's not the Red Sea, it's the Sea of Reeds. For when you came out of Egypt... And, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. What does the word utterly mean? Completely and totally. Chapter 3 of Deuteronomy is going to be about the defeats of Sihon and Og. God wants you to see more detail on how it happens. Verse 11 says, and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab is in what city? Jericho, which is the first city you enter when you come down from Mount Pisgah and cross the Jordan River. So even as the Knowledge of the Lord and what he's done for Israel begins to enter the land of Canaan. The people begin to be so terrified and hearted that they become easy to conquer. And that's only because Israel was obedient to God in this instance. Let's go to Joshua chapter is 7 or 9. Let me look and see. I think it's a nine. Yes, it is. Joshua chapter nine, verses nine to 11. God told Israel not to make treaties with any of the pagans in the land, right? But here come a group of Gibeonites. Verse eight, they went to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? Why does he ask, where do you come from? Because if there are pagans in the land, he can't make a treaty with them, right? And they look like they came from far away. They brought moldy bread, etc. Verse 9, so he said to him, from a very far country your servants have come. Because in the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion king of Heshbon, and Og king of Ashan who was at Ashtaroth. Again, Sion and Og were giants. And the people have heard that these giants could not stand before the God of Israel. So they're saying, if the giants can't prevail against your God, how could we? Verse 11, therefore... Our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them we're your servants now therefore make a covenant with us. Why did they put on this elaborate ruse? Because they're terrified of Israel and Israel's God. Go to Judges chapter 11 verse 14. Judges, chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Sea of Reeds and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and camped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. Let me see what this circle is out here. Okay, we're good. Verse 32, they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabot and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord, the God of Israel, has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Well, Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, and Aurora and its villages, and all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years. Why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. So, what's happened here? God did not allow Israel to attack Ammon. But what did Ammon do? Ammon, these hundreds of years later, attacked Israel. Is Israel allowed to defend itself? Yep, even today, Israel is allowed to defend itself. One last scripture before we look at two others. Let's go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 28. What did God promise about the security of Israel when they were faithful to God? Nobody would attack or covet their land. Look at verse 10. Then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. Just as happened before, that will always be the case when Israel is faithful to God. Is the nation of Israel today faithful unto God? No, and that's why there's missiles being fired up from the Gaza Strip, and why Iran is making nuclear weapons to nuke them. But what happens when Israel shortly will turn back to the Lord with one heart? (coughs) Then God's going to go out there and fight for them. The nations that are coming against Israel are going to learn that they have made a big (coughs) boo-boo. The last thing I want you to know before we stop for today is that Deuteronomy chapter 2 is the subject of many songs. Let's go to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Verses 5 through 12. (coughs) For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth. What does that mean? If the Lord wants to do something, who can stand against him? Nobody. In the seas and in all deep places, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. What's that talking about? Evaporation to go up and form clouds. Did you know that was in the Bible? here it is. He makes lightning for the rain, so the vapors evaporate up into the sky, form clouds, the clouds bump together, they make lightning. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, that was the last plague, the death of the firstborn, both the man and beast. He sent signs and wonders in the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He defeated many nations and slew mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Oh. This land of Sihon and Og includes what we call today the Golan Heights. Israel says it's ours. Right here, the Bible says it's theirs. The United Nonsense says, no, it belongs to Syria. How do you think that's going to go? Not going to go well for the United Nonsense, is it? Let's look also at Psalm 136, verses 16 to 20. And following. Tim who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. Ki le'olam chasto. Tim who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever. And sue famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. At the end of the Psalm 83 war, Israel is going to push out its borders and will take back the land that used to belong to the Amorites. The land that they captured from Og and Sihon. For God said it's a heritage for Israel. A heritage means an inheritance. Their property that will continue from generation to generation. And God does not allow his land ever to be permanently sold outside of those to whom he gave it. So they may not have possession of all of it today. But I trust the word of God. And I can tell you for sure they will shortly Have it all, all that God promised. Well, we've come to the end of our time for today. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 1.